If you turn to your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be uh, looking this evening at the last part of the chapter from verse 35 uh, to verse uh, 58. We're only six weeks away from Easter, and I did notice that the supermarkets are already filling up with uh, chocolate eggs. And invariably, when we get to Easter, along with the chocolate eggs and the bunnies and all the rest of it, some uh, high-level clergyman comes out with a denial of the resurrection. It's almost as regular as the, the first cuckoo of spring. There will be a denial of the resurrection. Um, we have seen that the resurrection is central to Christian belief. You cannot uh, pick and choose. You cannot uh, be a Christian and not believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Uh, has been vindicated as the, the victor of death. Uh, but we're looking in the last section uh, now at the form that our resurrection body will have. And as we summarized earlier, the teaching is that there is a continuity with our body just now. Uh, we will be recognizably the same, but gloriously transformed, both the same and different. Now, Paul is, is speaking into a, a context in Corinth which was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. And the Greeks didn't have a very high opinion of the body. They thought that the body was a cage. Uh, they recognized that the body is corruptible. It's prone to disease. It's wasting away. Uh, why would we th wish that something which is as corruptible as the body would have an eternal perspective. And so they rubbished the idea of a resurrection of the body. But that is not what the Bible teaches about the body. The Bible teaches that we are a unity. We are a soul and body unity. Uh, a psychosomatic un union, we could say, to use a technical word. And the body is uh, absolutely uh, important to what we are and to what we will continue to be. It's possible that the Corinthians were arguing against a, a misunderstanding of what the resurrection of the body would be, perhaps a crude uh, misunderstanding of, you know, the, the body simply being uh, breathed life into and kind of uh, emerging again from the, the coffin from the earth. And they, they mocked that idea. Surely, you know, we know that the worms have returned that old body to the soil. Surely we know that some are drowned, some are uh, scattered on battlefields. The body is not there any longer uh, to have life breathed into it. And so they rejected the whole concept of the resurrection of the body. Uh, now, belief, un unbelief in a bodily resurrection uh, isn't just an old matter, it's very much uh, a modern phenomenon as well. There are the, the liberal clerics that like to despise the idea of the body being restored. Uh, you remember one of the most infamous of the uh, liberal uh, Anglican bishops, David Jenkins, the Bishop of Durham, famously said once about the resurrection of Jesus that God is not in the business of conjuring tricks 
with bones. And so uh, he thought that the gospel account of the physical resurrection of Jesus were myth. But as well as you know, those who are in ivory towers despising a bodily resurrection, the ordinary men and women of our own day, of our own uh, communities, they have also turned their backs on the idea of a bodily resurrection in another way, because uh, they have resorted to all kinds of very woolly, uh, spiritualized talk of what happens after death. And you'll be familiar with this kind of thinking you hear all the time around uh, the funerals of, of people who have got no Christian worldview. Uh, oh, you know, he's not really gone. He's with me all the time. Uh, you know, I, I feel he's right there beside me. We talk to one another. That's nonsense. That is absolutely nonsense. Uh, the tragedy of death, the reason why death is the last enemy, is that it does separate us from our loved ones. It's a solemn reality. Uh, and the, the hope that we have is bound up in a very physical resurrection of our loved ones and a, a renewal of our fellowship because of being in Christ. And such woolly talk, this kind of very vacuous, spiritualized talk, uh, empties the resurrection of real content and substitutes some emotional, wishful thinking for the reality of a general resurrection. Uh, you, you find uh, various versions of this kind of gobbledygook at uh, funerals written down in the orders of service of, of secularized funerals. Uh, here's an example, uh, a poem which is often used uh, at funerals by, by Mary Fine. You'll get the idea of just how uh, up in the clouds it all is. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there, I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight and ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. That's an old uh, pagan view, uh, really, called pantheism, where uh, you know, the God or soul of the universe permeates the, the matter of the universe. It's a load of nonsense. In verses 3 to 8, Paul has said that the resurrection is central to the Christian message. Uh, as we said, you can't call yourself a Christian unless you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and your trust is in him. question is, uh, is it an option uh, whether or not we believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead? Uh, well, it's not an option in so far as it's never optional whether or not we believe what Scripture plainly teaches. And as we've just seen, if you reject a teaching like the bodily resurrection, you're going to believe anything 
You could believe all sorts of, of uh, ancient pagan myths about what happens to the dead. You will be fair game for the most ridiculous kinds of teaching. So, Paul says it's really important that the Corinthians who have struggled with the idea of the resurrection, both uh, of, of Christ and of the general resurrection, should have a very firm idea of, of how it will take place, of what the, the resur re resurrection body will be like. And here's how the argument uh, works. Verses 35 to 44, uh, Paul is saying, God has given us illustrations of the resurrection uh, in the natural world. Uh, then, uh, second point, verses 45 to 49, the great model for what we will be like is Christ himself and his new body. Uh, then verses 50 to 57, uh, the future resurrection is only possible because of the victory that Christ has won. And then in verse 58, he teases out the implications for giving ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord's work because of our future hope. First point then is that God has given us pictures of our new bodies in nature. Uh, when Paul says, now someone may ask, he's not just raising uh, a kind of rhetorical po uh, possibility, someone clearly has asked, and not only so, they have asked uh, in a very cynical way. Uh, they're uh, saying, as it were, Tell me then how you think this bodily resurrection works. Do tell me what kind of body they will come with. And there's a note of disdain in their voice as he asks the question. And Paul's response, therefore, is quite sharp. It's literally, you fool. You are making, he says, a very basic mistake. Even in nature, there's a pattern for a, a new body which is linked with the old body that has died. And he instances, first of all, the idea of a seed, a seed that dies and gives life again. Now, all of us are, are familiar with this kind of picture. Think of a potato. We've all planted a potato at some point, haven't we? Yes. <laughs> and you, what you do when you're planting a potato is you're really, you're conducting a kind of burial service, aren't you? You're burying the potato in the ground. Someone who came along and watched you planting potatoes, that's what they would think you were doing. You're digging a hole, the potato goes into the hole. It's a burial. And the potato dies. You know, dig up this seed potato uh, a few weeks down the line, and there's a kind of death taking place. It's uh, disintegrating. It's becoming mushy. But at the same time as it's dying, it's also bringing forth life. Uh, it produces a home. The, the, the top growth, the, the potato plant above the surface of the ground. And then when it comes uh, to harvesting the potatoes and you put the, the fork into the ground, there's this abundance of new life below. But the potato in dying has given uh, birth uh, to uh, a form which you didn't have before. didn't have that green foliage before. And so the point that Paul's making is that uh, the body that comes with the resurrection 
is connected to, but different from, the body that we have now. That seed of wheat sown by the farmer in October comes to a death, withers away. It produces a new form of life, the wheat uh, plant, uh, the blade, and then the ear. But it's connected with what's gone before, but a death had to take place. Secondly, God uh, appoints different bodies for different environments. So we're going to have a different kind of body uh, when Jesus comes, and it's suited to the different environment of the new heaven and new earth. And Paul says, well, that's the way it is. Uh, there's no point in putting life into a human body for existence in the sea. Creatures that are in the sea need fishy bodies, bodies appropriate to that kind of environment. A sea eagle, most magnificent of, of birds, uh, it needs to have uh, muscles that will power its wings, feathers, uh, to enable its flight. Uh, it has a certain kind of body. A rabbit has got a different body suited to its own environment. And not only is the body, the form, appropriate for the environment, but the glory of each different kind of creature or creation is different. All are different in their splendor. Who's to say that the microscopic life seen in a little piece of moss is any more or less splendid and glorious than a grand mountain landscape? It's just different. Different kinds of splendor. God grants these different beauties to different things. Stars and constellations of one, mountains and lochs of another kind. And thirdly, the future of our body is much better than the present. And to that, we say, Amen. We're glad about that. We're going to have a body which is more glorious than the body we have now, uh, which is continually showing signs of decay. But God is going to transform us. It will be a glorious future in a glorious new body. Uh, now, Paul is very upfront about this. He, he speaks about the body that we have now uh, as perishable, as dishonored, and weak. Now, there's no denying that, is there? And one of the saddest things is to, to see this uh, perishing happening. Uh, you know, you... you somebody that you've known a long time and, and loved dearly and there was an athleticism in their body and there was a, a brightness in their eye that spoke of a sharp intelligence and you see that wasting away perishing and you go into a, the geriatric ward of the hospital and you see people who are really wasting away before your very eyes. It's the nature of the body that we have now. But Paul's saying that the nature of our body in the future is 
spiritual, he'll call it. It's different. And it will not know uh, this disintegration. People spend all amounts of money trying to hold back the process. But we know that uh, you can't be a canute-like before the, the ravages of, of aging. You know, not all the money spent on suntan parlors or nail parlors or hair transplant clinics are going to stop the change that's coming to us. We are all perishing. Our bodies are disintegrating. That's the fact of the matter. The second point that Paul makes is that the, the great model uh, for what we will be like is not so much found in nature, it's, it's found in Christ. And Paul sets up this this comparison between Christ and Adam in verses 45 to 49 calls Christ the last Adam. And we're familiar with this idea in terms of uh, sin, what happened with sin. Adam is set up as a representative uh, in Eden, and he uh, represented us, and when he sinned, we sinned in him. Now, Adam was set in Eden uh, with a body that was adapted to his present condition. Uh, Verse 45 refers back to Genesis 2, verse 7. The man became a living being, referring to God, remember, breathing life into the, the, the man who had been made from the dust of the earth. Uh, Now, this is what Paul calls the natural body, or the natural humanity. Adam was, in fact, created to be immortal, and he would have remained immortal if he had never sinned. But it's interesting that from what Paul says here, uh, if he had stood, if he had not sinned, his body would have changed. He would have been given a body suited for immortality. And that's probably where the the tree of life comes in, and that's why uh, he is prevented from taking from the tree of life, which would have uh, brought about this this change, we presume. We inherit from Adam this natural body, because we are united to Adam, Uh, we are in Adam, Uh, but there is a last Adam, Christ. And if we trust him, we are placed in him by faith. And we then share in his humanity, which is a spiritual body. That doesn't mean an immaterial body. Uh, It means a body that's suited for a spiritual environment. Not an earthy existence as we have now in Adam, a spiritual existence which we'll have. Still a physical existence, but a spiritual existence. Verse 46. And Jesus is the model for all of us who are in him. Jesus had a glorious resurrection body, which was the same but different to the body he had before the resurrection. Um, He is a source of the the spiritual life which will result in the transformation that he brings about. Uh, He is said to have been made a life-giving spirit. The first Adam became a living soul. The the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. What does that mean? The Son of God became flesh. He came into this earth. And he came with the power to give life 
to whosoever he would. The Son of Man has power to give life to whosoever he wills. And at his second coming, he will transform our bodies to be ready for their new environment. We bore the likeness of the first Adam, the man from the earth, Paul says. Well, in the same way, we will bear the likeness of Jesus, the Lord from heaven. That's amazing. That's breathtaking. And no wonder when John, in his uh, epistle, is thinking about this, uh, you know, he's lost for words, as it were. He gasps with wonder. Uh, verse 2, uh, chapter 2, rather, of his first epistle. Dear friends, now we are children of God. What we shall be has not yet been made known. Okay, so we haven't been given all the details. That's quite clear. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, or we shall see him as he is. Jesus' resurrection body is the model for our resurrection body. So if we want to think about what we'll look like in heaven, we need to think about Jesus' body after the resurrection. Paul says, Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Verse 49. Now what was Jesus' body like after the resurrection? Well, clearly, people uh, could recognize that it was Jesus. There was that continuity with what went before. And it was a physical body. Uh, he was able to, to eat a meal, and he could show uh, the people the nail prints in his hands and the, the place where the, the spear had pierced his side. But there are these elements also in the resurrection accounts which are mysterious, aren't they? There, there is the, the failure, for example, of Mary Magdalene to recognize Jesus at the graveside hour, where she was crying. She was not expecting Jesus. But then there were the, the disciples at the, the lake shore uh, when uh, Jesus greets them when they're fishing, and they don't recognize Jesus at first. And the impression is given that there was something which was uh, distinctive of Jesus' resurrection body. It had a glory which took people uh, by surprise. And we know that uh, his body was able to pass through closed doors. Uh, he disappeared at will. It was the same, but it was different. It was a, a glorious resurrection body. And as it was with Jesus, praise God, so it will be with us. Thirdly, the resurrection body is only possible because of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, <clears throat> so, we need to have ourselves fitted to having what Paul calls a spiritual body, if we are going to enter uh, the kingdom of God. We need to be transformed. We need a body that is suited for heaven, a perishable carcass. Uh, the uh, earthy body uh, that we have in Adam is not suited for an environment where nothing perishes. And Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed which is uh, 
reminds me of the, 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 uh, the cartoon of the American church that had this over their crash, you know. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all sleep. Paul is speaking about this instantaneous transformation, not a gradual transformation, but uh, in the twinkling of an eye, transformation into our glorious future resurrection bodies. Some will have fallen asleep in Christ. We've already noted how that's a beautiful expression of the Christian's death. It's a falling asleep in the arms of Jesus. But there will be an awakening when Jesus returns. Uh, and some will be alive at his appearing, but all of us will be changed. Not a gradual process, an instantaneous <coughs> process. And we'll get bodies that are bright and shining and fit for all of the joy of heaven. And then there will be that ultimate one in the eye for the enemy. Death will be no more. Death will be defeated. The last enemy will be defeated because the graves will give up the dead wherever and however they have been kept. Uh, they will be raised and will be clothed. Uh, God's people will be clothed in imperishable, glorious bodies. Death will have been swallowed up in victory. And that victory is only uh, ours, is only possible because of what Christ has done in his own death and resurrection. Without Jesus' work on the cross, we are not morally or relationally fit for heaven. That's our fundamental problem. Our fundamental problem is uh, not so much uh, the bodies that we have, it's the enmity in which we stand with God. But in going to take the curse of sin as our representative, in going as the last Adam, Jesus has taken the sting of death. He has taken the sting of death. That's a very useful picture. But if you think about uh, the sting of a honeybee, uh, it, can be, it can be quite a dangerous thing. Uh, if, for example, if you're in the car with a child who is sensitive to a sting, you know, who would have an anaphylactic shock uh, if it was stung by a bee. You're in a panic. Bee gets into the car. Uh, what do you do? Uh, of course, the best thing you could do is to get, get rid of the bee, get the bee out of the window. But you could also offer your eye uh, to the bee to be stung. Because the unique thing about the honeybee is that when the bee uh, puts the, the, the barb of the sting into your flesh. It's unable to withdraw it again. It ruptures its abdomen in the process, and it dies. So in, in stinging, the bee itself dies, and it's no longer able to sting anyone else. The sting has been drawn. It's dead. And this is the picture of what Christ has done. He bore the sting of sin. Sin that has the backing of the power of the law, the, the, the law that condemns. Jesus bore the sting himself in order that death might be defeated. God has saved us from all that Satan and sin and death would do. Thanks be to God, Paul cries. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, 
what are the conclusions for this? Is this all just a kind of academic exercise, a speculative exercise in what lies ahead? It's intensely practical, friends. If you're a Christian, you have been placed by faith into a Jesus who is still the God-man, but whose humanity is gloriously transformed. And all that is waiting for uh, our bodies being changed is the return of Christ at the end. Uh, when, when you believed, uh, you were placed into the last Adam. You received a new humanity. We don't really think about that very often. But we are right now uh, in a position where we are ready for heaven because we are in Christ. We are transformable uh, into the image of Christ. And there are some important applications from the hope that we have of a bodily resurrection. Uh, the first of these is that our body is important. Now, if we, if we become hyper-spiritual in the wrong sense, uh, we end up being like the Corinthians, uh, who thought that the only things that mattered were the, the, in the realm of the spirit or the mind, and that your body was not important. Now, it's not surprising, is it, that Corinth became a, a real messed up church with, for example, sexual immorality uh, being tolerated within it. Uh, Paul warns against this hyper-spiritual thinking. He tells us, uh, do not allow the members of your body to become slaves of sin. What you do in the body is important. You're a bodily creature. We're to offer our bodies up as living sacrifices. Why? You know, I, I, I have to confess that I, I smile sometimes when someone comes up with a lame excuse for not being in church and they say, I'll be with you in spirit. I'm saying, well, that's good, but we want your body as well. <laughs> we want the body and the spirit present to encourage the brethren in church. We are body and soul units. The body is important. Secondly, the bodily resurrection ties this life to the life to come. Uh, we've got an insight into what lies ahead for us. Uh, and it means that this life counts. This life counts, and also this world counts. This present creation counts. It's going to be transformed gloriously renewed when Jesus comes. Romans 8 tells us of how the creation is groaning, longing for the return of Christ. Now, think about it. Just as your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you better be caring for it because it's got a future, the world in which we're set has got a future also. You see where we're going? Christians of all people should be environmentalists, not just ecologists, but all of us should be careful about how the earth is treated. Because, friends, it's not a throwaway earth. It is an earth with a future. It will be renewed. It will be different, but there is a connection with what we have. And so our care for field and forest is not in vain, because field and forest will be renewed in the renewal of all things. The bodily resurrection matters. And then thirdly, the resurrection enables us to live as the people of great 
hope. You know, it said that uh, the Moravians, uh, <coughs> the Moravians were uh, a sect of the, the Reformation Anabaptists uh, who lived in a community in Hernhood, uh, which was owned by Count Zinzendorf. And uh, these people had a gloriously practical uh, view of the resurrection. And uh, at Easter time, <coughs> their practice was to, to go into the, the graveyard at Hernhood. And uh, as they greeted the, the uh, Easter morning, they got out the, the trombones and the trumpets and they declared, uh, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And they were there in the graveyard because they knew that the day was coming when the graves would give up their dead and they would be clothed anew with spiritual bodies. They were, uh, in a sense, they were eyeballing death they were triumphing in the triumph that Christ had won. And then fourthly, and uh, this is the point which Paul uh, explicitly makes at the end, the resurrection victory, our consciousness of the resurrection victory, brings great strength to our work for Jesus. We don't need to be like the Corinthians who were becoming ineffective, because they were confused over this issue. Uh, if you're not going to be raised, or if there's not such a big divide between now and then, uh, why put your all into the Lord's service? But the Lord is risen. Jesus has risen as the first fruits. He is the, the last Adam. Uh, he has been raised. Uh, he is a life-giving spirit, and he will transform our lowly bodies into the uh, appearance of his glorious heavenly body. The Lord from heaven has assured our future. And therefore, Paul says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not purposeless. Uh, Jesus is coming with his reward. Therefore, stand firm. Put your shoulder to the wheel. Give you all to his work, because it will not be in vain. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. Thank you for the glorious hope that we have as believers of the resurrection of the body. Lord, make this practical, intensely practical for us in the week ahead, that we might serve you in our bodies, uh, in the workplace where you set us, uh, in the school, the college, the office, the canteen, uh, Lord, may we shine for you. Uh, may we render you worship with what we do with our hands, with how we think, with what we say. In Jesus' name we pray.